Okay, well, welcome to this session on biblical preaching, and I uh, trust it will be a help to you. Why don't we have a word of prayer? We'll probably have some others slip in who are doing other things for a minute, but uh, let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Father, thank you for what our hearts have felt, our minds have uh, learned this morning. And uh, Lord, I pray that that would not uh, quickly slip away from us as we go to more and more sessions throughout the conference. But Lord, continue to embed those things in our hearts and minds that we might go back to our places of ministry and live them. And we pray for this session, that Lord, you would honor it, you'd bless it. And uh, may uh, these uh, thoughts today be of some help to these men who desire to communicate effectively your word. Thank you for the calling that you give us. Uh, to preach the word. And so I pray that we'd be faithful in doing so, and we'll thank you for the results. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 and uh, use verses 1 and 2 as kind of a launching pad uh, for what we're going to try to teach here today. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, I love this passage of Scripture. Uh, these are Paul's final words to Timothy as he prepares himself to be martyred uh, knowing that his departure is at hand, and he's trying to pass down one last time some instruction to this son in the faith, Timothy. And he starts this fourth chapter with these words, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. There are multiple definitions of preaching today. And if you pay attention, there are multiple demonstrations of what that preaching might consist of. When God commands us to preach the word, what does that mean? What is biblical preaching? I think that's what we want, it's what we desire to do, but what does that look like? Well, certainly biblical preaching must include content, but it also must include communication. And in order to communicate that content, there must be a conduit. And so we have a message, we have a method, we have a man. You cannot separate these ingredients away from biblical preaching. You must have a message, you must have a messenger, and you must have a method. Now with that in mind, in these passages before us, these verses before us today, I see five aspects of biblical preaching in Paul's words to Timothy. First, we see a solemn charge. I charge thee therefore before God. Notice our first audience. The first audience in preaching, every time we stand to preach, our first concern is not whether we will impress the audience that gathers before us to listen. We're not there to impress someone else who may be a preacher. We're not there to impress our wife or our kids. Our first audience is God Himself. 
I charge ye therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Always preach first to an audience of one. God is listening. God is interested in our message. Why? Because without Him, we are nothing. Without Him, we can do nothing. Without God, we are nothing. Without us, God is still God. Paul said, When it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the heathen. Now, any man or woman can stand up and speak, but only a God-called and God-enabled man can preach. If God is not pleased with our preaching, no person is going to be impacted by it either. They may be pleased, but not impacted. We must have God's anointing. We must have God's unction or God's utterance upon what we are going to deliver. So remember or recognize our first audience. Then remember His final appearing as you preach. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Think about something. If God is going to bring every idle word into judgment, and Matthew 12, 46 says, Every idle word which man shall speak, he shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, by thy words thou shalt be condemned. If God is going to bring every idle word into judgment, I think He's going to, give, he's going to bring every preached word into judgment. We are responsible to preach His message. And we must remember that one day we will stand before Him, and according to Hebrews 13 and verse 17, we will give an account of our ministry back to the Lord. So we see, first of all, a solemn charge. But secondly, we see a sacred communication. In verse number 2, he says, preach the Word. Preaching. What a wonderful method of communication. What a wonderful means that God has designed to allow us to have a part in His work among men. Not because of us as preachers, but because of the power of God that has ordained and empowered that preaching, is it effective? Titus chapter 1 and verse 3, God says, But hath in due times manifested His word through preaching. God communicates to man's heart through preaching. After that, Paul said, In the wisdom of God, uh, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. I always uh, kind of chuckle in my heart about that, uh, the foolishness of preaching, because I'm sure God in heaven sometimes sits up there and listens to me preach and says, that's a bunch of foolishness. But you know what? I promise to bless it. I promise to use it, because it's my word. And so we don't have to wonder or worry about the method. It's been tried. It's been tested by God to be found faithful. There's no problem in this world that cannot be solved by one sermon. 21st century revival is just one sermon away. It only took one sermon for the entire city of Nineveh to repent. And it was preached by a backslidden preacher. We're just one sermon away. 
from God awakening our country. We're just one sermon away from God changing your community. We're just one sermon away from a worldwide movement of God. It is a worthy method. And we have a wonderful message. The Word. Preach the Word. Not preach about the Word. Preach the Word. I can usually tell by the way a preacher reads his text how much of the Word we're going to actually hear. So many preachers read their text as though to get it out of the way so that they can get to their notes. We would be better to read a few notes and get that out of the way and read the Word. What a wonderful message we have. The text often has about as much to do with a sermon as the national anthem has to do with a football game. It gets things started and then you never hear from it again. We must be careful, gentlemen, that we preach the Word. You cannot improve upon thus saith the Lord. Now, I realize in the book of Ezra, they read the Scriptures. They made the sense of it. They helped people to understand what the Word of God said. But you cannot improve on what God has said. God's Word is powerful. The Word of God is quick. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I can't even know my own heart, much less the heart of the people in the audience. But the Bible is a discerner of the heart. It's an uncoverer. It's a revealer. It's a bringer out to light of the condition of the heart. As the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. It shall accomplish that which I please. It shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. That's why Jeremiah said, The prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. He that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. For what is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? Is not my word like as a fire and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? We talk about a hard-hearted culture. We talk about a culture that's becoming more and more anti-God and anti-Bible and even anti-religious. And yet the word of God is that very tool that can break that rock in pieces. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoice in the heart. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned. And in keeping of them, there's great reward. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom. And the man that getteth understanding, for the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver, and the gain thereof than fine gold. She's more precious than rubies, and all the things that thou canst desire are not to be compared unto her. Length of days is in her right hand, riches and honor in her left hand. She's a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her, and happy is every man that retaineth her. 
Pastor used it this morning, but I've said it many times. God may bless my nice homiletical outline. He may bless my stories. He may bless my illustrations. He may bless my quotations, but he doesn't promise to. He only promises to bless his word. So preach the word. You have authority to preach the word. We, we waste our time on anything else. And so we have a solemn charge. We have a sacred communication. This is God's book. It's His divine communication to man. But then notice thirdly, the sustained commitment. In verse 2, Paul says, preach the word, be instant. Be instant. Are you ready to preach right now? You say you're called to preach. Are you ready to preach right now? Are you instant? Paul said, I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. So as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel. Are you ready to preach? Peter on the day of Pentecost was not planning to preach. I don't think he had a sermon in his back pocket of his robe. (laughs) Peter showed up at Pentecost and Suddenly, God's Holy Spirit began to move among them, and they began to speak the Word of God in in, in languages that people were able to understand, and and people were confused by this. The critics were were out, and they said, these men are full of new wine. Peter stood up, and he began to preach. And he preached that powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost. And if you study it, it's basically just Old Testament Scripture. And God began to work. He was ready to be used by God. He was ready to preach. We see not only a constant readiness, but we see a changeless reliability. He goes on to say, be instant, in season, out of season. There will be times where it will be easy to preach. The congregation will be on your side. They will come anticipating the message. They will come wanting to respond in obedience. There will be other times where the audience will come skeptical. They will come critical. They will, be, they will maybe come uh, doubtfully. They will not be sure that this is exactly what they need. But God says we're to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Not to become weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. The greatest ability is dependability. Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man, who can find? We need to be faithful in the preaching of God's Word. As Pastor alluded to this morning or last night, so many churches are finding less opportunities to preach, trying to create less opportunities for the Word of God to be heralded and proclaimed when we should be looking for more opportunities to preach the Word of God. We see along with this uh, constant readiness and a changeless reliability, we see a courageous resilience out of season, in season, out of season. It won't always be popular. In fact, Paul goes on in verse 3, the time will come. I think it has. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers. Notice the plurality of authority there. Teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. 
would not always be easy to preach God's Word. Sometimes it will fly in the face of the culture in which we minister. Sometimes it will go against the thinking of the person in the pew. But we must be resilient, courageously preaching God's Word. Ezekiel was commissioned to preach, and God told him before he started, uh, their faces are hard-hearted. Their faces are against you. But preach anyway. Jeremiah was told, you're going to preach to a generation of people that are not going to listen. You're never going to see any results, but I need you to preach. And gentlemen, we may live in a culture that by and large is, is, is rejecting our message, but we're still called to preach His Word. And you don't know what the results will be. You will never be able to calculate all the results. I've said it often, don't glory in your fruitfulness, glory in your faithfulness. You'll never be as fruitful as you want to be. But you can pillow your head every night knowing you were faithful. And when you stand before God, that's all He's going to require is, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You, you can't know the fruit that God is going to bring from preaching. God may bring the fruit in that service. He may bring that fruit 30 years later in a service you know nothing about. We're to be faithful. We're to be resilient. My oldest son was born during the week that I was preaching a revival just 30 miles away. And God just kind of worked all that out. And my wife delivered on a Monday. And I was preaching in a town, as I said, 30 miles away in Valparaiso, Indiana. And so she got out of the hospital on Tuesday, and they came to the revival. My wife sat in the front row with, with John in her arms, and I tried to preach the devil out of that two-year-old kid, two-day-old two kid. And uh, that was a lot of fun, to take my new family, you know, to revival, my son, and I was so excited about all that. But that week came to an end on Friday night. And uh, I was there Saturday morning with my wife and my new son, and my wife said, when are you leaving? And I said, well, I don't know if I'm going. I was scheduled to preach 200 miles away starting the next Sunday through Friday in a little town called Ames, Iowa, home of Iowa State University. She said, well, you, you, you got to go. I mean, it's on the schedule. I said, yeah, I know, but I, I don't know if God wants me to go. I mean, I'm a new dad. And I have responsibility to take care of my family. If I don't do that, I've denied the faith. I'm worse than an infidel. So uh, maybe God will let me get out of this revival. I'll just call the pastor and say, hey, I'm a new dad and I can't come. And my wife said, you can't do that. Uh, I mean, God, God, when you scheduled the meeting, knew we were going to have a new son at this time. And, and so you, you've got to take the meeting. Well, finally, around noon, I, I realized she was right. And I didn't want to leave my family, but the doctors had told us that uh, John wouldn't be able to travel for about a month before he could get on the road with us and, and uh, would need some care, you know, at home with the doctors and so on. And so I took off. But all the way there, I was thinking, Lord, am I doing the right thing? I was torn, you know, about following my calling or following, you know, my instincts as a dad. I got to Ames, Iowa, and it didn't help that the church was located in an old school building about eight miles outside of town. It should have been condemned when Noah stepped off the ark. It was the oldest looking building I'd ever seen. In fact, I, I couldn't believe when I pulled up to the address of this place that this was actually the church. It just looked like an, an abandoned building. 
There was a car there, and it was the pastor's, and he met me and took me inside the building, and they had done some work on some of the building. They certainly didn't need all of it, but they were buying this old school outside of town and trying to fix it up to minister in. And he took me down to the gymnasium, and I don't know how they ever played basketball in that gym. It was very narrow. Uh, it wasn't much wider than this classroom this way, and I mean, it, it wasn't wide enough for a legalized basketball court. And it was extremely long. It was, it was narrow, and it was extremely long, and they had kind of uh, taken everything out of there that used to resemble the gym, and they had made it an auditorium. And they had chairs set up from front to back. I mean, there must have been 200 chairs in there. Now, the church is running 20. They had about 200 chairs in there. I thought, boy, they have big faith here for this week. There was no platform. There was just a, 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 a kind of a, an orchestra stand at the front with a, with a microphone. And... Uh, so I'm looking at this thing thinking, you know, this is going to be a little bit difficult as far as the, the environment to preach. It's kind of a, a very uh, hard surface kind of a place, cement brick walls and tile floor and, and, or wood floor, I think it was, and, and, uh, and, and, and all these metal chairs and, and no platform to really project things out. And, and I'm thinking this, this may be a little bit of a challenge. Well, we fellowshiped a little bit, and we went to his house where I was staying, and we came back Sunday morning, and those 20 people came in, and like good Baptists, they all took a seat in the last two rows. <laughs> and uh, I tried to get them to move up during Sunday school. They weren't moving anywhere. They weren't going to listen to me, and they, they sat back there. I could barely see them. I mean, they're, they're so far back there, and I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to teach the Sunday school lesson, and morning service was kind of the same. Same 20 people sitting in the last two rows. And uh, again, tried to encourage them to move up on a song, but they weren't moving. That was their spot. I mean, they had graffiti on the back of their chair that marked their spot, I think. And so they were, they were stuck back there. And that's whole the, week, whole, the whole week was like that. It was just difficult. And I'm thinking to myself, this is all because God's judging me. I mean, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be home with my son. And, uh, and, I, and I, I disobeyed God. And I've come to this place, and, and nothing's happening here. And uh, so this was a mistake. But Tuesday night, a young man was brought to those meetings. I didn't say invited. I didn't say asked to come. He was brought to the meeting. His name was Steve, Steve Highland. Steve at the time was a drug pusher on the campus of Iowa State University. He told me later, that he would make, this was 1977, he would make $20,000 a week selling drugs on that campus. Steve had a buyer whose name was Bud. Bud had gotten saved in that church about a month before the, that revival meeting. Bud was a new Christian. But during that revival, he got burdened for his drug dealer. He had, hadn't seen him since he got saved. He quit using dope and got cleaned up, and, but he got burdened for his drug dealer. So that Tuesday afternoon, he went to Steve's apartment and knocked on the door, and Steve gladly let him in. He thought he was there to buy some crack. And, and um, he walked in and said, what can I do for you? And, and Bud said, Steve, you're going to church with me tonight. Now, Steve, at that point in his life, at 20 years of age, had never been inside of a church building. 
Not one time, not for a wedding, not for a funeral, nothing. He'd never been inside a church. He knew nothing about religion. He said, I, I'm not going to church. But said, Steve, you're going to church with me tonight. Steve said, I ain't going to church. Bud was bigger than Steve. And he went over and literally picked him up out of his chair. He said, Steve, you're going to church with me. And he carried him down a flight of stairs to his van and threw him in the van, brought him to that revival, set him on the back row with all the other backslidden Baptists. <laughs> I didn't know he was there. Couldn't see him. And I don't know what I preached that night. But Steve told me later, he said, when you bowed your head at the end and closed your eyes, I don't know how he knew I closed my eyes. I couldn't see his eyes from where I was. He said, when you closed your eyes, I got out of there. He said, you scared me half to death. I had never heard of heaven. I had never heard of hell. I didn't know Jesus. I didn't know the devil. I didn't know nothing. He said, you scared me. He said, when you closed your eyes, I got out of there. I walked out to the road, and I hitchhiked myself back into town. He went back to his apartment, tried to go to sleep, but he couldn't sleep. About 2.30 in the morning, Steve slipped to his knees by the side of that bed. And he said, God, I don't know you. In fact, I don't even know who you are or whether you exist or anything. But if what that preacher said is real, that's what I want. The next morning, Bud went back to that apartment to follow up. We just heard about that. Knocked on his door. Steve invited him in again. And he told him what he had experienced the night before. And Bud, that new Christian, didn't know much, but he took out a New Testament. And he began to go through the Romans road with Steve. And he got halfway through it. About how all have sinned. There's a wage to sin. Jesus Christ died for us. And Steve stopped him. And he said, I think I got saved. And Steve explained the rest of it and prayed for Steve a prayer of assurance in his heart that God would show him that he truly was saved. Shared some verses with him. Steve Hyland, a few days later, decided that he would go to Bible college. He had over $100,000 of drug money in the bank. Gave it all away. He said, I'm going to Bible college penniless. I'm not going to depend on drug money to get me through school. Started college in the fall. Finished four years later. Has now pastored for over four decades. I didn't even know he was there. General, we've got to be resilient. In times when it doesn't seem like anything's happening through your preaching, if you're preaching the Word, something's happening. God uses His Word. And we must be committed. So we see a solemn charge, a sacred communication, a sustained commitment, but then we see the sermon content. In verse 2, he goes on to say, Be instant in season, out of season, Reprove. 
reprove. Here we see that preaching convicts. As we preach the Word, the Holy Spirit of God gets involved with that Word and reproves. He begins to rebuke. Preaching is not preaching unless people are brought to a decision. We must preach to reprove. Conviction ought to begin the minute we open the Bible and read the Scriptures. We want the Holy Spirit to be involved. Don't wait for the conclusion for God to apply something to the heart. All the way through the sermon, we want the Holy Spirit to be convicting. There's an interesting story in the book of John where Jesus, they brought to him a woman taken in adultery. You remember the story? In the very act, they said. And so they brought, it, brought her to Jesus and they said, uh, this woman hath committed adultery and the, the law says that such should be stoned. What sayest thou? By the way, the law said whoever had committed adultery with her also should be stoned, but they didn't bring him. Some, some scholars believe that, that one of her accusers was actually the one that committed the adultery, but we'll leave that to the theologians. And Jesus, you remember, stooped down and he wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. But when they continued asking him, he stood up and he said, uh, Whosoever is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Have you ever wondered what he wrote on the ground? I don't think he was drawing up football plays. The Bible says that they, being convicted in their own consciences, went out, beginning at the eldest, even unto the least, and left Jesus alone with the woman in the midst. Now, I have to believe, because of what the Bible teaches throughout about the Word of God, that Jesus wrote the Scripture in the dirt because they were convicted. And I tend to believe with some of the scholars, that when Jesus stooped down and rolled on the ground, I believe he started writing the Ten Commandments. And there was one there, thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, what did he write the second time? He stands up, he, he says, who serves without sin? I mean, here's the law. And you guys perfect? Any of you kept the law? Let him cast the first stone. And again, he stoops down, he writes again. What did he write the second time? I think he started writing their names next to the commandment they broke. And they were convicted. We've got to have some preaching that convicts. We've got to have some preaching that reaches the heart. Conviction is necessary for change to take place. See, every person is in some kind of a spiritual comfort zone. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, what did they do when God showed up in the garden? They hid. They tried to cover. They, they tried to get some fig leaves to cover up their shame, to cover up their wickedness. Every, every person that you preach to is, is, is trying to hide. They're trying to cover. And we've got to have preaching that, that reaches into that comfort zone, that reaches in with conviction. There was a butcher who ran a little shop on the edge of London. 
He decided one Sunday that he would go into town and hear the great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon. His wife chose not to go with him. So the butcher went to town, went to church, returned home. That afternoon, his wife began to question him about his church experience. She said, what songs did they sing? He said, I, I don't remember. She said, well, what was the sermon title? Again, he said, uh, I, I don't recall. Somewhat exasperated, his wife wanted to know, well, what good did it do for you to go to church? Butcher was quiet for a minute. And then he said, what good? I'll tell you what good. You know those scales down at the shop that we weigh the meat on? Those scales that weigh 14 ounces to the pound? Instead of 16? Well, before we open business tomorrow morning, I'm going to correct those scales to weigh a full 16 ounces of the pound. That's what good it did. Preaching changes lives. Preaching changes people's behavior. People go out different when the Word of God is preached. But not only preaching that convicts, but preaching that charges. He says, exhort, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Holding fast the faithful word, exhorting, Titus says. It means to stretch people's faith and, and, and cause them to grow. Uh, what, is it that, what is the next step that people in the audience need to take? As preachers, we must exhort them. We must prod them to take that next step. So many Christians today are settling for a status quo. They're just kind of settling for mediocrity. They come to church. They don't want to be stretched. They don't want to get out of their comfort zone. They don't want to go to the next level. And preaching has got to exhort people. But then we also know that preaching must comfort. It must convict. It must charge. But it must also Comfort, he says, with all long suffering and doctrine. Someone has said, preach to hurting people and you'll never lack for an audience. People are hurting. And preaching must comfort. Preaching must help people realize that there's a God that loves them, that there's a God who cares about their needs. There's a God that can meet those needs. We must preach the mercies of God, the love of God, the long suffering of God. And so, we must have sermon content. It must convict. It must charge. It must exhort. But it must also comfort those that are hurting. Comfort those that are going through a trial. So we have a solemn charge. We have a sacred communication. We have a sustained commitment. We have a sermon content. But then Paul really sums it up here. In verse 2, when he talks about a sincere character. He says in the last part of verse 2, with all long-suffering and doctrine. Now, let's look at that phrase from a little different angle. Because it involves more than what we say, but what we are. Nike has capitalized on the phrase, just do it. But Scripture would capitalize on the phrase, just be it. 
And it's so important that as we preach, we have a tactful motive, long-suffering. We must be long-suffering toward the people we preach to. God doesn't talk about backdoor revivals. God doesn't believe in evangelists that come into a church and, 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 and blow up, uh, uh, blow in, blow up, and blow out. God's not for rip your face, skin them preaching. We're commanded to feed the sheep. And I believe we ought to shear the sheep. That, that's where their productivity lies. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I'm like sounding brass, tinkling cymbal. God emphasizes there in 1 Corinthians 13 the long-suffering that must accompany our preaching. The motive. A motive of love, a motive of concern, a motive of care for those that we are charged with. A visitor came to the home of an old man who lived there with his family after Robert McChain's death. The visitor said, tell me, how did McChain study and preach? The visitor asked, and the old man took the visitor into McChain's study and said, sit down. Sit down at his desk. The man sat down. He said, now, put your hands over your face and let the tears fall. That's the way my master studied. The old man asked the visitor to follow him into the church across the street and onto the platform, to the pulpit. He said, get in the pulpit. The visitor did so. He said, now, now lean over, lean way over the pulpit and let the tears fall. That's the way my master preached. Compassion that makes a difference. We must preach with a tactful motive, long-suffering. But then we must preach with a truthful message and doctrine. We must not sacrifice truth for tact. While it's important that we have the right disposition, and I'm a believer in that, we must not sacrifice our position for our disposition. We must have both. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. Paul told Timothy, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Make sure that you're right. Make sure that you're prayed up. Make sure that you're in a right relationship with God. And then make sure that you're preaching the truth, speaking that truth in love. The old Scots minister climbed wearily into the pulpit. Bowed and dejected, he had just faced the harsh criticism of one of his deacons. Sir, there is something radically wrong with your ministry, the deacon said. Only one person has been saved this year, and he is only a boy. The words stung him, for he too felt heartbroken that so few had responded to the gospel. Yet still he trusted God for the results. The service concluded, but the weary 
man of God lingered at the church, wondering if there was any point continuing in the ministry. As he stood, a young boy tugged at his coat, who had been waiting behind him. Please, sir. The old minister turned. Yes, Robert. Do you think if I worked really hard at it, that perhaps I could become a preacher? The old minister said, God bless you, my boy. With tears in his eyes, he said, yes, I think you would make a good preacher. It was years later that an elderly missionary came back to London from Africa. He had pushed back the boundaries of geographical knowledge and brought savage chiefs under the influence of the gospel of peace, given the tribes there in Africa Bibles in their own tongues. But most of all, he had followed the Lord with all of his heart. Robert Moffat, the little boy, won to Christ by a tired old man, had become a soul winner. On one visit to England, Moffat told the need of Africa. Among those who heard him on that day was a young Scottish medical student who had given his life to God for missionary service. Robert Moffat's words pierced that young person's life. As he said, there is a vast plain to the north where I have sometimes seen in the morning sun the smoke of a thousand villages where no missionary has ever been. That young medical student filled with the vision of what God wanted to do, he asked Mr. Moffat, would I do in Africa? The direction of David Livingstone's life had been changed. Who can tell what impact through the ministry of that first old Scotsman? Only a boy. Only one, and that just a boy. It seemed yet far off generations and tribes knew the effect of it all. You never know what God is doing and can do through your preaching. Don't be discouraged. Keep praying. Keep preaching. And preach the word. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, thank you for these men. And Lord, whether they be young, whether they be old, whether they be not yet in the ministry or whether they have served many years, you need all of us to preach the word. And Lord, we don't know all the results, but you do. And you are not unrighteous to forget our work and labor of love which we have showed toward your name and that we have ministered to the saints and do minister. And so God, would you place your hand of power upon every man in this room as they endeavor to preach the word. May our life back it up. May our message be saturated with truth. And may, Lord, your Holy Spirit power enable that truth 
to change people's lives like Robert Moffat, who can in turn change lives like David Livingston, and in turn can change the world for the cause of Christ. Bless these men. In the remainder of this conference, may you change us while we're here, that we might go back and change lives back home. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, gentlemen. Lunch is on.